This is the First Christian Church of Lubbock podcast, where we exist to share the gospel and edify the church through Bible-based teachings and content. I am your host, Scott Hall. On today's episode, Pastor Paul Carpenter will be teaching through Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. This episode is taken from our Wednesday noon Bible study hosted at First Christian Church. Well, good morning, good afternoon, church. As I look out in the sanctuary today, uh, I've been just eager to see you all. And the uh, image I have is that each of us are little branches and each of our feet are planted firmly in the vine. In the Gospel of John chapter 15, Jesus gives us that image and he calls us these tender, flexible shoots. And the only value that those shoots have is, is uh, manifest when we are connected to the vine. We don't have anything to give or anything to do except to connect to Jesus and then to bear his fruit in the world. So as we pray today, I wanna just, I want each of us to consider ourselves one of these shoots coming out of the vine and that he is eager to display on us the work of his son, Jesus Christ. The father's eager to do that. So let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, as we consider the vine in which our lives are held, our purpose is found, we see that even greater than the foot race that the sun is running right now over our head, rising in the east, carrying over our heads at high noon and running all the way to the other horizon, oh God, Jesus, our Lord, has run his race. His years of striving, of pouring out, every step with purpose, his perfect righteousness taken and submitted to the tree on Golgotha, him waiting in the grave for you to raise him from the dead, certain that you would. Him rising and is now at the right hand of heaven and he is praying and pleading and sending the spirit and offering grace to both unbelievers that they would believe and to believers like us that we would grow. May the prayers of our Savior Jesus, may the fruit of the vine work its way up through us today and be displayed in our lives. May the fruit of the Holy Spirit be seen. May the grace of the Spirit be enjoyed. And Father, may your church walk according to this Spirit this week as we study the scriptures and we reflect on the strong man who ran his race Jesus Christ, may that produce in us a fruitful and holy life. May you take the gospel through its full progression from justifying our hearts to sanctifying our lives and glorifying Christ through us, that we wouldn't just stop at being saved, but we would carry on with glorifying our great Savior. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Our scripture today is the second half of Matthew chapter two, beginning with verse 13. 
May God add his blessing to the reading, the hearing, the understanding of his word. When the Magi had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up and took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. When Herod realized that he had been over or outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, he will be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So Matthew makes our life easy. He tells us where to go, where to look. And we're going to be looking at those Old Testament passages. Before we do so, I wanted to just make two points about the work of Christ. The first that Matthew's pointing out is that Jesus is the perfect Israel. The second is that Jesus is the perfect Moses. So who is Israel? They're the chosen people, the nation that God chose for himself, he gave the law to them, he gave the promises, the covenants to them, and through them, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And if you look at the history of Israel, on how they followed God, it's not clean. There's really three moves, or four moves that we see. If you do it like a clock, on the top, you have God established a people. Then you have, at three o'clock, the people rebelled against God. On the six o'clock, you have God punished his people. And at the nine o'clock, you have the people repented. He reestablished them. They rebelled. He punished them. They repented. Reestablished. Sound familiar? This is the whole Old Testament. Over and over and over again. When Christ is overlaid on the covenant... The new covenant fulfills the old covenant. They work together. What you have is there's a short circuit through Christ and his cross so that God establishes a people. We rebel. Christ absorbs the punishment. We repent. 
are established, rebel, repent, establish, rebel, repent, establish, rebel. And so the cycle of God's people continues and Christ bears the cost. What we see here is unlike Israel, Jesus never rebelled. Jesus wasn't punished due to his rebellion. He was punished due to our rebellion. Jesus gladly obeyed God. Jesus took his obedience all the way to Golgotha. And when he's talking about, let this cup pass from me, he is not arguing with the father about being pierced in his side or being nailed through his hands or wearing a crown of thorns or being mocked or rejected or spat upon or struck. He's not talking about those things. He can handle all of that. Jesus is talking about the father turning his back on him. The only person in the history of the world who has experienced forsakenness is Jesus Christ. You have never experienced that. No one has. Until the final judgment, there is benevolence. After the final judgment, God will turn his back on those who do not repent and offer them his eternal wrath. But nobody has tasted the unfiltered, holy, righteous, full wrath of God as Christ has. So what we see in Jesus is that he is the perfect Israel. And later what we're gonna show is that he is also the perfect Moses. So I've written in Israel that they're chosen by God, called out of the world and to God, and they are a rebellious people. Now let's be honest. They're not any more rebellious than any other people. They're just people. They're sinners. Their nature, as our nature, is to be selfish. If you're with us on Sunday, Jesus makes that point regarding what's in your heart will display itself and confirm that you're normal, which is rebellious, self-worshiping, self-absorbed, not God-fearing. Apart from God's intervention and grace in your life, you would have lived a completely carnal, self-glorifying, selfish, narcissistic life People would have applauded you for it. You'll find a group that will. And then you would die. And then you hope they throw a big party and a celebration and talk about how glorious you were, called a funeral. And then you go to hell. But that's not what God did. God has chosen to intervene through grace, to humble us. God's people are rebellious, but we are God's people. And then he changes our nature over time. Now Moses, similar to to Jesus, Moses faced death as an infant along with all the other boys. He's in Egypt. Um, God used him to lead the others out. So what we see is Moses, Matthew is trying to make a connection that Jesus Christ has come to fulfill the role of Moses. He's come to fulfill the role of the chosen people. He's just like he came to be the better David, the better Noah, the better everything. Jesus is the better priest, the better prophet, the better king. Not just better, but perfect. As we discussed at the beginning of this book, this gospel is the whole Bible is about Jesus Christ. The Older Testament 
points and foreshadows that he'll come. The Gospels reveal him directly. The book of Acts preaches him and shows what happens when he's preached. The epistles explain him, and the book of Revelation expects his return. The whole book, all 66 books, are about Jesus Christ, our Savior. Jesus is the perfect Israel. He's the perfect Moses. So what you see, again, Matthew does all the work for us. He is... uh, led to Egypt by his caretaker, Joseph. In just semantics, you might have noticed four times, the the angel refers to Joseph, Jesus, and Mary, not as a family. He says, he didn't say, get up, take your family and go to Egypt. What does he say? Take the child, take his mother and go to Egypt. Verse 14, so he got up, he took the child and his mother. Now, I mean, just for the sake of word count, he could have said, your fam. Get in the minivan, go. I don't say, you know, how was your vacation? It's great. I took my wife, I took my son, I took my daughter, and believe it or not, I took my other son. Would you bring your dog? No, I left him home. And then on the way home, you see the same thing. The angel of the Lord said, get up, verse 19, or verse 20, take the child and his mother, go to the land of Israel, verse 21. So he got up, he took the child and his mother. Matthew's making a point over and over again throughout the gospel that Joseph's primary relationship to Jesus was that Jesus Christ came to redeem him. Joseph also was his guardian. He raised him in carpentry and all that. But Matthew is belaboring the point to keep us from turning Jesus into just another human story. We love to do that. We love the parts of the story where Jesus is just like us. And I don't mean in terms of solidarity. In fact, I heard too many times in seminary that people's favorite story about Jesus is when he told the woman, the Samaritan woman, Syrophoenician woman, called her a dog. And then their interpretation of the story is that Jesus was corrected by the woman and that he was wrong. And their favorite thing about that story is that I'm wrong too, just like Jesus, and we learn as we go. Well, at another day, at another hour, I'm going to teach and preach that story, but Jesus is never wrong. There's got to be another answer to that story. But what we tend to do is not let God form us in the image of Christ. We try to form Christ in the image of me. But what we see is through this prophecy, Matthew is saying that Jesus's relocation to Egypt was to fulfill a prophecy. That prophecy is in the book of Hosea. If you'll turn there with me. We'll give you a second to find it. It's on page 1326. Don't turn there, by the way. Hosea. Hosea is a very interesting prophet. It's a book about uh, a husband and an adulterous wife. The, his wife he loves would die for his wife, and she cheats on him. And so it's a whole book about his love for this adulterous wife. That's the same as God's love for his chosen people. The, con- the conflict within the heart. 
I'm going to read this whole chapter. It's a short chapter, but this is where Matthew wants us to turn. Verse one, when Israel was a child, I loved him and called him out of, and out of Egypt, I called my son. And that's where Matthew stops. He's hoping we would keep reading. Let's keep going. But the more I called Israel, the further they went from me. They sacrificed to Baals and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. I lifted the yoke from their neck and I bent down to feed them. Okay, pause real quick. You have already a relationship where all the problems come from Israel and all the solutions come from God. All the, all the foibles, all the mistakes, all the rebellion. It's, and so you immediately, when you ask the question, who is living your Christian life? It's all of me and it's all of God. All the problems come from me. All the solutions come from God. This is the grace of God that he has chosen to humble himself to feed a people like Israel. Okay, unpause. Will they not return to Egypt? Will, they, will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? Swords will flash in their cities and will destroy the bars of their gates and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me. Even if they call to the Most High, he will by no means exalt them. Now watch the turn. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zabim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I turn and devastate Ephraim. For I am God and not man, the Holy One among you, I will not come in wrath. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will come trembling like birds from Egypt, like doves from Assyria. I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. Just like in Exodus chapter 34, when God says, I will forgive the sins, I will, not, I will, I will offer a grace to sinners, forgiveness. And then in the next breath, he says, but I will not let the guilty go unpunished. How does that work? The cross, Jesus. And here you have a people who have been chosen by God. God is very patient with them. And if left unattended, unintervened, leapt off God's graces unto them, they would have moved in their own direction and returned to be completely secular, completely carnal, and be gone as a separate people for God's glory. That's what we would do. That's our nature. But God is doing something out of love for us that would cause us to desire to come to him. And he's going to do it through a roar of a lion. Who is the Lion of Judah? Jesus. Matthew doesn't want us to just read verse 1. He wants us to read 
the whole context about God's grace, about Christ's work. What he's saying is, have you ever read, to the Jews, have you ever read Hosea 11 and just kind of scratched your head and thought, I don't get it. Here's how you get it. He's building up these cases. He's talking to Jews. Matthew's a Jewish writer, and he's building up all these things about childhood stories. Has that ever bothered you that the tortoise won and not the hare? Did it ever bother you that uh, the, the, the UT Longhorns run the Big 12 when we should all have an equal vote? Have, have ever, I mean, just like whatever. He's talking about like contextual issues that we all get. And he said, let me show you about Jesus. It's going to change the way you look at Hosea 11. It's going to change the way you look at Jeremiah 31. It's going to change the way you look at Daniel 12. Look at Jesus. So I've written some notes here. The first is God's eternal love for his people plus Israel's persistent turning away from God. They are devoted to sin. Uh, The outcome, if God doesn't... uh, Sorry, the outcome, if God doesn't, A, restrict their sinful hearts, and B, doesn't roar like a lion through Christ, I didn't finish that sentence, is that God would no longer have a people. The people of God are in complete existence because of God's faithfulness to his own promise for a people. We have become the trophies of Christ's work. God thought of it. Christ accomplished it. The Holy Spirit holds it together. That's the only way God has anything he's made, including his people. I put A and B there because A is the first thing that God does for all mankind is he restricts our depravity. We are not taught that. We are taught a pagan teaching that people are basically good. I always like to add, we're basically good dot, 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 at sinning. We're basically good at sinning. I don't know where we came up with this, except this is what we want to hear. The Bible gives us a different anthropology. If you read Genesis chapter six, God saw in the human heart unrestricted by his grace that their desire was for only evil all the time. That's us on our own without God's grace. When Paul preached in Athens, he says that it is, it is in God that you live and move and have your being. God is actively involved in the lives of all people right now. His benevolence. He brings the rain to the wicked as well as to the righteous. He's involved. His eye is on the sparrow. And so if God chose for some reason to... Loosen the restrictions of your carnality. This is before you knew Jesus. You're just walking around, living your life. He lifts those restrictions. You and I could have easily become the next Jeffrey Dahmer. And we don't like to think that. The reason we have any good in us at all is by the grace of God. As Psalm 16 says, nearness to God is my only good. That's humbling. What's the difference between God's people in Herod that was willing to kill a bunch of babies? Or Pharaoh that did the same? 
or Nebuchadnezzar's men that took the children of Israel and dashed them against the rocks. What's the difference? Grace, intervention. So one thing we see is that God restricts sin in our hearts. When you become one with Christ, that restriction gets really tightened down and your conscience becomes louder. Jiminy Cricket, right? Give a whistle. You become more hateful of your own sin and more willing to repent. This is the work of Christ and the Holy Spirit in us. So number one is if God chose to remove his restrictions, his people would have intermarried with all the Canaanites. They would have worshipped all the Baals, which they kind of did anyhow, but God still preserved them. They would have joined the Philistine army. They would have cheered for Goliath and not for David. There are sheep and there are goats. They would have been full-fledged goats, totally goaty, eating tuna fish cans, living their lives like a goat. They'll die. They'll have a goat funeral. Goats go to hell. But God did not do that. He restricts people. He keeps us in a holding pattern. And then the second thing he does for the sake of his people is that he lets out a roar like a lion through Jesus Christ so that not only are we restricted, but now we become united to Jesus. So God is pointing us back to Hosea to show that at no point in the history of his people were they righteous, obedient, or naturally good. I've also written here, Matthew uh, is saying, Jesus, unlike Israel, Jesus walked perfectly the redeeming path in order for God to have his people while holding up the necessary levels of righteousness. So overlaid on the gospel of Matthew, you have the Exodus account. Go down, Moses, go down. When Israel was in Egypt land, let my people go. Uh, so you have the Israelites, you have Moses all put together. Moses had his trouble too. Egypt is a foreshadowing of the Christ event. Jesus Christ goes out into the wilderness for 40 days. There he's tempted by the devil. The devil, for the first time, he, he, he knew it was Jesus, but he assumed since Jesus took human form, that he really took human form to the point that he would also fall into the temptations that every man has fallen into. And lo and behold, for the first time in history, it didn't work. Jesus left Egypt with his stepfather and his, his mother. His nature, as we discussed on Sunday, compared to our nature, his nature is holy and sinless and God-fearing and glorious and obedient and loving and all the fruit of the Spirit. Jesus' nature, by nature, if you ask Jesus what he wants to do, it's always righteous. You ask me what I want to do, it's always selfish. <laughs> By nature, Jesus 
Christ entered the world without sin, faced every temptation we faced, walked the path, walked the same path that Israel was called to walk, and yet was able to do it. Fulfilling every law and then becoming a curse. I've written also down here that much like Joseph in Egypt, and we'll pause real quick. You know the story of Joseph in Egypt. He was sold by his own people providentially. That was God. Joseph puts it this way. God sent me ahead of you. Well, sent ahead actually meant his brothers wanted to kill him. Well, instead of killing him, they threw him in a pit. And then they sat down and had a sack lunch. Think about how cold-blooded you had to be to do that. Then they saw traitors come through the the, the valley, and then they sold their brother into slavery. The brother went off slavery. Now the sons are off living guiltily their own lives. God providentially used that sending ahead of Joseph, number one, as we know, to give mercy to his family, but number two, to give mercy to the entire Egyptian region because it was through Joseph that Egypt had a plan to not have famine and everyone die. Joseph ends up having the food. He's rich in food. He's also on the mercy seat. He has an opportunity with his brothers. Years later, they don't even recognize him. He pretends to only speak Egyptian and work through a translator while listening to true repentance from his brothers. We should not have done that. Joseph, the better. Jesus is the better Joseph. Joseph goes off and weeps when he heard this, and he elected to show mercy to his family, not only because he was in the mercy seat, but because he had the food to do it. He's rich. That's Jesus. The same people that killed him, we, sinners, come to him in our hour of need, and he's on the mercy seat. What does he do? Well, if we're guilty and we don't believe in grace, we'll never go to him. But if we believe and we've heard the message of his rich mercy and grace to sinners like us, we go to him and he gives us mercy. He welcomes us home. The very man we crucified is the man we need. Our only hope. Well, in the same way we have the story of Exodus is you can see that it actually occurred to reveal what Jesus would do perfectly. All the while, it was the the people that were preserved so that Jesus could be born, but we also know that Jesus is going to be born no matter what. And so one way to look at it is that the, the, the main purpose for the Exodus account is to help us see what no one could do but Christ. To come out of the world and to come to God willingly and perfectly. Jesus Christ. He offered the path with his life. He has become the way, the truth, and the life. Through him and only through him can you and I tread that path of glory unto heaven. Jesus Christ had to go to Egypt, according to Matthew, to fulfill Hosea chapter 11. So we also see in this story... um, I'm going to put this into two. The Hosea, just consider that as the story of God and his people. This next part is the story of God's people versus wicked oppressors. And so today we are facing that difficult part of the Christmas account 
when Herod uh, was so intent on control that he was willing to murder babies. Uh, the quote that we have here is from Jeremiah chapter 31, and it quotes, uh, it quotes using the word Rama. Rama's a town back in the Old Testament that was uh, five miles outside of Jerusalem. And as the women, uh, the women wailed as they were being carried into exile, and ever, after having experienced such violence and hatred by the Babylonians, if you were to read Psalm 137, just for the sake of time, we won't turn there today. By the rivers of Babylon, there we wept when we remembered Zion. Our captors compelled us and mocked us to sing songs of Zion. Oh, if I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand wither. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I forget Jerusalem, if I forget God. But then they utter this curse to the Babylonians. It's in the Psalms. May God bless whoever takes their children by the feet and dashes them against the rocks. Why would they say that? Because that's what happened to them. You know, when we hear exile, um, Joseph being sent to Egypt, uh, Exodus, the the, the depths of violence and injustice, especially against the people of God, are so severe that we don't have the words to say, to talk about them except to groan. Well, what we have here is another encounter of that fulfilled, but now in the presence of Christ. So we turn to Jeremiah 31. 15. The whole chapter of 31 is, is designed to be positive that the Lord says at that time, verse one, I will be the God of all and all of the clans of Israel. They will be my people. I will bring them back. You will survive all these things. I will satisfy. I will give abundance. And then verse 15, this is what the Lord says. A voice is heard in Ramah. Mourning and great, weep, great weeping, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because her children are no more. This is what the Lord says. Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears for your work will be rewarded. They will return from the land of the enemy so there is hope for your future your children will return to their own land. Now, how could God say that? Is he saying that God will uh, uh, bring the children back to life? Now, if we go, just one quote in particular, we go back to Hosea chapter 11, we just read, God says, for I'm not a mortal, I'm God. I don't, I don't do what you do. I don't think like you think. Psalm 50, verse 20, you make the mistake, sinners, of thinking that you and I are the same. I'm not like you, says God. No matter how bad it gets, no matter what the people of God go through, no matter the level of weeping, 
God is able to say, you cry for now, but your morning's going to turn into dancing. Your winter is going to give it into spring. Take the worst nightmare of your life that could occur because you are a believer in Jesus Christ. Whatever that is, your family tortured and raped, killed, the patriarch of your family being beheaded on live TV. Just go there for a minute. Think of your worst nightmare, persecution for the sake of the word of God. What, what's that worst nightmare? Just hold on to that. Finally, through Christ, we can say, oh, it hurts. But just for a second. And then the gates of paradise open for the martyrs and for the Un, the, those who have been treated as victims of injustice for the word of God. The last will be first. The white robes of righteousness. We see throughout the entire New Testament, the fulfillment of the old, that the church will be led like sheep to the slaughter. And we are more than victors through Christ. You know, sitting here in America, we don't have a concept of suffering for Christ. Jen Hatmaker says, you know, it's okay if people hate you because of Jesus. It's not okay if people hate Jesus because of you. And that's about as far as we take it. Oh, someone's mad at my Facebook post or someone. But the concept that for the word of God, that you would be found crushed and weeping and that God could say through the prophet Jeremiah, stop crying. He's not saying stop crying because you have no reason to cry. He's saying stop crying as if the end has come. You won't be crying for long. What we see through the people of God is the presence of such hatred for God himself that eventually is taken out on God's very people. If you go back to Exodus chapter 1, you remember the story of God leading the people, his people into, into uh, Egypt. And after a few Pharaohs had transitioned, Pharaoh became threatened by God's people. Psalm chapter 2 says, why did the nation so furiously rage against God? They say, let us throw off our shackles. Let us not be ordained or ruled by God. God laughs at them. They say, you know, you want to hear God laugh? People say, tell him your plan. That's not what the Bible says. You want to hear God laugh? Tell him he's not sovereign. That's what the Bible says. The nations, I mean, the, the very thing the world wants to do is the one thing that God prohibits, and that's self-worship. And the very reality of the gospel of an invasion of another kingdom to replace this kingdom, to replace America, well, that's hated and resisted. And so the people of God, wherever we've lived, if we live for Christ and not for Egypt, 
blessed by God, we become numerous, we become a threat. And Pharaoh can't kill God, so he goes after God's people. He tells the midwives of the Hebrew, for the Hebrew women to throw the babies in the, in the Nile to drown them. He tells, uh, Herod tells his soldiers to go to an entire community and slaughter every boy under the age of two. So written here, the unbelieving rulers are threatened by God and God's people. In order to prevent God's plans, they carry out abominable acts of violence against children. The dedication and devotion to the fallen world to control themselves and the environment around them should be so clear when we are willing to kill children in order to do that, to maintain control. You have got to know what I'm alluding to now. Over and over and over again, it's revealed that the sinful governments, the sinful people, have on the table killing children. That's how precious self-sovereignty is to them. It's so clear how fallen we are. And uh, for the people of God, we're no different. It's just God's been gracious to us. He's called us to become a holy people, to have our nature changed over time unto Christ, to, to conform to Jesus. And that's our story. We're no better than Goliath. We just receive grace. But it should be clear that God is resisted and hated by the ways of this world, and therefore many times God's people get caught in between that hatred. And that's part of the story. I think that's probably why nobody likes to read the book of Revelation, because we just don't want to think negative thoughts. Danger, peril, sword, famine, persecution, those are all ordained. Jesus makes that clear that um, as soon as you have room in your life for Jesus, the world has no more room for you. Just wait. And so it's good to know what you're all about before you have to face that. And I've gotten in trouble in this church several times for bringing this topic up because nobody wants to hear it. But I am telling you and hopefully warning us that the last 100 years as a nation in terms of its niceness to Christianity is an anomaly historically. It's not normal. And it's actually been one of the worst things that could happen to the church. We don't know the difference between patriotism and Christ. I was raised in it. I'm going to get off my soapbox now. Okay. But I mean, again, 
Hate to point this out, Matthew's the one that brings these things up, not Pastor Paul. But in the middle of the Christmas story, you have this intense hatred for the Christ event that would cause Herod to murder children. So as much as Jesus is fulfilling the walk so that God can have a people, we also see that the nations hate God and display that hatred upon God's people. Now there's three leaders that are mentioned, or two named here, we'll know one later. Herod, who was there when Jesus was born. Archelaus, who was there when they came back to town. It says in verse 22, but when Joseph heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea, in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And we also know Pontius Pilate will, will come to follow when Jesus is an adult. Now, historically, what happened is, again, Herod was not a Jew. He was uh, placed illegitimately uh, over this region of, of Judea. The, the Romans allowed it. They encouraged it. His son, Archelaus, was so terrible. He lasted about 10 years. He was so cruel, uh, even worse than the, his dad that killed babies. Imagine that. He was so cruel that uh, the Romans inter had to step in. And that's when they said, all right, you can have your fake little Herod thing going on, but we're going to put in our own governor. And that's when Pontius Pilate came on the scene. So remember, by the time Jesus was uh, taken for the crucifixion, he went to the Sanhedrin, then he went to Pilate, then he went to Herod's palace, then he went back to Pilate. But who really was in control? Pilate. Well, Jesus. As I've written here, Jesus is not threatened or fretting about these rulers. So again, whether it's Herod or Pilate, Jesus is not lose, like freaking out, just like he wasn't scared of the water, the, the storm on the ocean. In fact, the time he has in front of Pilate, he tells them directly, you would have no authority over me except that which is given to you. Jesus is saying, I'm choosing to submit myself to your authority for the purposes of the cross. So Jesus is not worried. God's people, however, are motivated to behave and make huge life decisions out of respect for the cruelty of these listed men. And you see that in the Old Testament when Isaiah goes to King Ahab and or Ahaz, who I, I get all the kings mixed up, but mentions, uh, he says, now you don't want to have a, an alliance with Egypt because, uh, because Babylon's watching you. And he has to just bring this up. And, when he, and that's God getting his convict, his, his, uh, this king's uh, attention. When he brings up this king, it causes him to get back in line. And so God can use our respect for cruel men to get us to be guided. Now, that doesn't mean we cower and we bow down to the plans of men, but it means that, you know, it's kind of like COVID. You don't need to freak out all the time, but don't go licking doorknobs, you know, just respect <laughs> the deal. I don't lick doorknobs any, anyways at any time, but God can motivate his people um, and so again, he, God's not concerned. Jesus is not fretting, but God's people can be stirred. And so we see that happen to, jo to Joseph. It says in verse 22, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. So I mean, think about your 
your life, you know, whether you live in Beaumont or Lubbock or Houston, uh, to make huge life decisions based on who is in office. That's pretty, it's pretty big. But get this, all of those decisions, Egypt, here, there, everywhere, Matthew makes a point. Verse 23, and Joseph went with his family and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. Even through the motivations of fear and, and worry and, tr and trials, God's word is fulfilled. Joseph was motivated by fear for this Archelaus. He was also motivated by a dream from the angel but ultimately he was led to plant his family in Nazareth. Now that's kind of a double meaning in Nazareth. And interesting, Matthew would say the prophets mentioned, that's actually nowhere in the prophecies. We, nobody can find what he's talking about. Um, but there's one connection if we want to go there. And number one is uh, Naz Nazareth would have been synonymous with despised. It's uh, for multiple reasons uh, that's why when uh, is it Nathaniel says, "What nothing good can come from Nazareth? Nothing good can come from Norman, Oklahoma, you know, or whatever. Whatever your town is, I don't know what your town is, but uh, you know, we all have these biases against certain places, and and so the town itself was associated with, you know, it may be how you feel about Odessa or something. Just you know, I don't want to go there. I'm fine, thank you." And so there, there's this idea that's despised. And that makes us think a lot about Isaiah 53, the first three verses, that he was despised. The Messiah, the Christ, is one that we would, men would shake their heads at, turn from. So there's nothing about Jesus, including his town that he was raised in, that would have made him attractive. Oh, you're from Odessa. Wow, nice to meet you. I've never met anyone from Odessa before. Tell me what that's like. Instead, we say, let me file that away into don't know, don't care. The other thing is the, the name Nazareth is rooted in the, the Hebrew for neser, which means branch. And of course, that would draw any Jew to uh, Isaiah 11. And so today, what I wanted to do was, was turn there together, and that, that will be where we end before prayer. Now, as we're turning there, Matthew has done a lot of work to make the, the Old Testament come alive for us. But what I want us to see is this morning, this morning I read Psalm 19 because it's the 19th of the month. And it does have this image about the, the heavens declare thy handiwork. Heaven pours forth speech. The sun, like a bridegroom, rises in the east and runs its perfect course. Never slowed, never stumbles and then sets. Now imagine if we looked up over here and one mile above the earth, there's Jesus Christ running across the sky. All day. Never slowing, never worried, strong. Doesn't need water breaks, nothing. He's running across the sky. 
I'm pretty sure we would cancel our presidential election this year. We'd probably cancel every, we'd probably, probably cancel church. We'd just all stand outside and just look at this guy. Jesus ran a much harder race than that. Not one day across the sky. He ran 33 years of perfection. One life fulfilled every prophecy in the Old Testament. Every promise Jesus took care of. And so when we're looking at this Old Testament stuff, I don't want us to look at it and say, isn't that neat? Or isn't that interesting? But instead, to take that and throw that to the vine or to Christ in the skies and just say, how great thou art. The, the point of reflecting on Scripture, the point of turning to Jesus, is that we would continue to grow in our awareness of him, his work, his perfection, our failure, persecution, all that but how good he is. Knowledge of the work of Christ is the point of the Gospels. And Matthew wants us to see it. So as you're thinking about Jesus, and again, I don't have a better image, just imagine he's getting up this morning and running across the sky. He's exactly one mile above the earth at all times, and he's running from edge to edge. Now hear these words. A shoot will come out of the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of power. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will lie down with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra, and the young child can put his hand in the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as if the waters are covering the sea." In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for all the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand as a second time to reclaim the remnant that is left of his people from all over the world. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. Ephraim's jealousy will vanish and Judah's enemies will be cut off. Ephraim will be not jealous of Judah, nor Judah hostile toward Ephraim. They will swoop down on the slopes of Philistia to the west. Together they will plunder the people of the east. 
They will lay hands on Edom and Moab, and the Amorites will be subject to them. The Lord will dry up the gulf of the Egyptian sea. With a scorching wind, he will sweep his hand over the Euphrates River. He will break it up into seven streams so that men can cross it in sandals. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people that is left from Assyria, as there was for Israel when they had come up from Egypt. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all the problems of the Old Testament. He's what makes it all work. God is having a people for himself, and it is 100% based upon the work and the, the race that our Savior Jesus Christ has run. He's gathering us in, so be gathered. He's bearing fruit, so bear fruit. He's calling out, so call out and come. These are the days of grace. May Jesus Christ be praised. Let us pray. Oh, Lord God, we thank you for our brother Matthew that would call our, our attention in the eyes of our hearts to behold the Christ event in its framework. That we would see that Jesus is not just like us, but has become one with us. That he is by nature perfect, that he is able, that he is strong that he is mighty and holy and infallible with every word and thought and that his prayers are perfect. That his race is impossible for us and that his victory has opened the doors and gates of paradise for all who would behold him with faith. Lord, no matter what we face, no matter what temptations, comforts, or persecutions are had, may you bind our wandering hearts to the vine, to our Savior, and may we smell like him and sound like him and look like him because we're near him. For nearness to Christ is our good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go in peace.